Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and here with me, well, not really with me, but still close in a different way, my co-host, the creator of this show, Tom Jokic. Christopher, every week we dig up classic interviews from the archives and we play them. And we play the best parts. And you and I riff on them and we talk about them. We talk about what we know. You talk about your experiences from your days in much music and before that. You talk about your experience as a songwriter, working uh, most notably for Alana Miles and with Alana Miles on songs like Black Velvet and Love Is and also many other projects that you've been a part of. All the interviews that you've done, all the traveling that you've You've done in the name of music. You continue to this day being a songwriter and now a renowned podcaster. And uh, <laughs> and so it's a thrill to be able to share these experiences oh. with you over the many episodes that we've done. I myself have been in the radio business for a very long time. I uh, haven't interviewed all that many. I've probably interviewed a good 20, 25 artists that would people would know. But I've sat in on or have been part of probably hundreds of interviews over the years. Yeah, you've you've seen a lot. And often sure. I've been the guy behind the scenes helping to write the questions to ask them or have done the research. Right. And so it's a real music geek's dream. And we, you and I both admit <laughs> that we are incredibly lucky to have to do this. Now, as you know, I also have many, many shortcomings. First and foremost, <laughs> my adoration of the band Kiss as my favorite group of all time. And so yeah, this this is this has just become problematic. So with yeah. that in mind, it should probably not surprise you to know that the band was never really a big group for me, as in Bob Dylan's band, as in, you know, Robbie Robertson, Rick Danko, the, all the rest of them. I never quite got them. They never really rang true. Like I knew some of the songs I knew up on Cripple Creek. I knew uh, Chest Fever, The Shape I'm In. I know a lot of those uh, songs, but they never really resonated. But over the last uh, you know, few I'm years, having trouble seeing my, my notes through the tears. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I, I said I wasn't going to get emotional. But I think I've grown up a little bit, Christopher. i got to tell you, I've started to get into them more. I've started to do things like watch The Last Waltz. I've started to listen yeah. to their greatest hits. I just read Robbie Robertson's uh, autobiography called Testimony, which was excellent. I oh just read gosh, a book. That's a terrific book. I just yeah. read a book called Small Town Talk by a writer, British writer, I think, by the name of Barney Hoskins. And it's oh, yeah. all about the town of Woodstock itself and the deep, like, dent that Bob Dylan and the members of the band and other people, including, oddly enough, Todd Rundgren, had on the development of that town of Woodstock, which is not to be confused with the Woodstock Festival, uh, although right. they are... Which was they, in Socrates. That's right. It was, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was a ways away. But that town and the deep connection that the band had there and also the drama between Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm and all that. There's so much to talk about. And that's why it's a real thrill when I actually discovered this unusual interview with Levon Helm and Rick Danko of the band post-Robbie. And this is fascinating stuff. And that's also, mm -hmm. we're going to go back and talk with Robbie himself, and I think it's Rick Danko again, and they're talking about the band's history. And it's just great stuff. Can't wait to play it for you and everyone listening today. Tom, I was visiting a friend in Woodstock, and his wife is a caterer, and they were having the Levon Helm Ramble that weekend. Right. Um, which they used to do, like, every month or so. And uh, so um, Krista was making some stuff for the Ramble, and Levon's wife came by to pick it up. And I said, oh, well, what is it? They opened the box for me, and inside 
there were cookies that were just like the little pink house on the front of the first album. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Great That's stuff. a little obscure, but there it is. So the band is coming up this week. What else do we have, Tom? Well, Christopher, before we get to the band, we've got an incredible 1993 interview with Randy Bachman. TCB taking care of business, Randy Bachman, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Woo! A party classic. You know, Tom, if they had a Canadian rock and roll Mount Rushmore, Randy Bachman would have a place on it. It's no exaggeration to say that the guess who are the foundation on which the Canadian music business is built, perhaps along with maybe Lightfoot and Ann Murray. Mm -hmm. But they had international hits and million-selling albums and a string of number ones here that included Shaken All Over, Laughing, No Time, American Woman, and No Sugar Tonight. The latter two were number one on Billboard as well. Mm. Now, after the Guess Who, Randy launched BTO, and the hits continued, including You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, a number one here and in the U.S. He's also hosted his own radio show for years. And you know what? Randy Bachman is one of those people you love to be around. My experiences with him include writing a song together for the first Canadian Idol winner. What? Really? Yeah, it didn't go on the record. No, it didn't oh. make the album, but we had a blast doing it. And our friend Rob Wells, friend of the pod was organizing a benefit at his kid's school to get instruments for their music program, and he asked me to come play, which I happily did. Right. And Randy showed up. Randy told all the stories, played all the hits, and then as a bonus, when I played Black Velvet, he played a solo in it. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Wow. So, uh -huh. so you're the writer of that song, and there's Randy Bachman playing a lead on your song. That <laughs> Looking is... across the stage in, in the high school gym, I might add. <laughs> okay, so I have a couple of questions. So you wrote the, um, uh, you wrote the, a song for the Canadian Idol winner, which didn't end up being used. That's the one. Uh, his name was Malcolm. His, his last name was Malcolm. Who was the, the first Canadian Idol winner? Ryan Malcolm. Ryan Malcolm. That's right. He was good on this show. It didn't turn out to be uh, you know, the career that I think he was hoping for and Rob Wells who you mentioned a few minutes ago man that guy is a great musician and producer along with his brother now Rob helped put together our theme music which we love thank you Rob and he's a big fan of the show and his brother just won a Juno award like that's amazing so that's quite a family too and a, a few of those people you know quite well that's great Tom this interview is before a live audience and looks back on some of the ups and downs in a storied career Randy talks about the impact of classic rock. Uh, I was just kind of going along, cruising along, doing what kind of came naturally, and out of a reformed BTO, uh, going on the road for the last three or four years, playing for a lot of classic rock radio stations in the summer. They have Summerfest and a lot of the state fairs in the states. I noticed this uh, incredible resurgence starting about four or five years ago in classic rock from the late 60s and early 70s. The stuff which I felt I really did the best. That's really my, my home ground. And um, I'm a typical yuppie. I went out and listened to the stations and bought all the CDs of all my favorite 60s and 70s bands all over again and uh, wanted something new from those bands. And I guess people wanted something new from me. And all along I was writing uh, uh, songs and putting them together as demo songs for other groups and for, you know, so uh, song demos and stuff. And somebody said, why don't you just do your own album? You have enough there that kind of sounds... Little bit of reminiscing of the Guess Who and BTO, but there's something new there, something that's fresh, and all your guitar stuff just sounds like it belongs on classic radio, anyways. And that kind of encouraged me and said, Yeah, I'll do what I do best, and had a lot of fun putting together these songs. And I've been kind of overwhelmed the last, 
week or so at the response to the album and to Prairie Town, which I thought would just be a little album cut. Yeah. Had you thought that maybe uh, the world didn't want to hear any new music from you and that, that all the stuff that you'd done in the past was like your moment? I kind of thought that in a way, and I was yeah. kind of uh, very surprised and very grateful that they liked all that, but they, they, they're ready for something else. So mm-hmm. I was really thrilled to do it. Wow, interesting the way the classic rock radio format was really catching on around this time. So this is early 90s, and that's when kind of the radio stations thought, you know what, we're not going to be playing much more new music anymore because that era seems to be over, that guitar-oriented music. And so classic rock really started to get teeth and really started latching on and was a very successful radio format for a while. Are you familiar with the new song, Prairie Town, that he referred to? There's a video that they made for that song with Neil Young playing in it. Yeah. And Margot Timmons from Cowboy Junkies singing background vocals. Wow. And it's gorgeous. That's great. Prairie Town, it's called. You know, that reminds me. I believe that there is a new uh, Randy Bachman documentary out right now. And Neil Young has always waved the flag for Randy. He and Randy Mm. were very close. And Randy, I think, was a huge influence on Neil. This is all kind of coming back to me now. So Randy Bachman, check out his story. And seriously, no one tells a better story about his own career than Randy Bachman does. And it's so glorious to hear. I saw him uh, in Niagara Falls probably about a little less than two years ago. And what he did is he played about a dozen songs, including all the big um, Guess Who songs, all the big Bachman-Turner Overdrive songs, and he told a story with each one, and I'm telling you, it was one of the most entertaining shows I have seen in my entire life. Randy Bachman hit it out of the park, and his stories are funny, they're self-deprecating, they're smart, they're informative, and he sang his parts, and he had a a guy who sounded very much like Burton Cummings singing lead on songs (laughs) like American Woman and Undone and many of those other uh, Guess Who hits. So he is so great, and I just love this guy. You know, Tom, the launch of BTO was driven by some very powerful feelings, including a hatred of the drug scene in rock and roll. I always had the impression that you were like really in control of, of your career, and especially in such a crazy business like the music business, that, that you never really weren't sure of what you were doing. You, sort of, you made a lot of decisions along the way and seemed very sure of them. Well, I think you might not be aware of some of my bad decisions, but uh, um, yeah, you have to be very careful. I always knew one thing, and that I really I grew up with and loved and played music all of my life, so I always knew that I had that. I always knew I could make a living somewhere, just playing a guitar somewhere in, in some dance hall or something, you know? Yeah, but you, and you were never like, terribly insecure about it and about the, the pitfalls and the perils of trying to make a living no, this way? No, no, the pitfalls are from it is when you get caught up in bad habits and you spend all your money and drinking and, and things going up your nose and stuff, and I was never into that. So I made enough money to always be very comfortable and more so than comfortable, you know? Speaking of that, how did you get motivated after the Guess Who to launch BTO? Because you made a lot of money and you did real well with the Guess Who, and that's like a whole other, you know, kick at the can. Uh, pretty, pretty much sheer anger and determination. Uh, when I left that band, it was the height of psychedelia. You know, it was 1970, and there had been like three or four years of LSD, you know, that, the late 60s. And uh, I wasn't into drugs. I was allergic to them, so I never got into drugs. Allergic to smoke and all that. And it, w- it was a terrifying thing to me, so I stayed away from it. Is that one of the reasons you left the Guess Who? 
Yeah, they were just like the rest of the country. They were getting into all this stuff, and it was like everywhere. It was in Time magazine, Newsweek. It was like a big hip thing. It wasn't like a big, bad, illegal thing to do, you know. There were still police busting people, but mm. the whole world was doing this turn-on, you know, tune-in, turn-on kind of thing, and I wasn't doing it. But I knew I still could make really good music, and when I left the Guess Who, it was, it was printed in Rolling Stone, and it was said by several people that I would never make it in this business being straight, and I thought, that has nothing to do <laughs> with music. <laughs> You know, it has nothing to do with any business, you know. Right. Tell that to uh, Everyone's born, today. hopefully, straight, and you spend most of your life straight, and then you get along these side roads that you choose that are real poor detours that could lead to a lot of destruction. And I'd seen my idols, you know, dying along the way, the Hendrix, the Joplins, the Jim Morrisons, and the later Elvis, just succumbing to those things. Oh, Rolling Stone says he's never going to make it after leaving the Guess Who. Boy, <laughs> just because he's not high enough, and it's a real testament to the people who survived because of good decisions in rock and roll. Randy also looks back at the beginnings of the Canadian music business. When you first had success back in the, the late 60s, there wasn't really a Canadian music industry, was there? Uh, not in the late. And when we started in the early 60s with uh, Shaking All Over, there was basically nothing. The radio stations hardly spoke to each other, and uh, you had local hits. You know, we were a local Winnipeg band. But even in the late 60s, when, when the Guess Who broke, things were still pretty... Pretty archaic. Yes, there was no unification, really, of, uh, like, no national syndication. Uh, the only thing that really unified Canada for a couple of years was 67, 68. We did a TV show on CBC, Let's Go and Music Hop, and that gave us national exposure coast to coast. And it started, I believe, the Canada Star System. It was the start of the Guess Who, Gordon Lightfoot, Anne Murray, Alex Trebek, who's hosting Jeopardy. And, uh, you know, a lot of great people from there, either uh, announcers, band, uh, band members are still around today, Bill Henderson from Chilliwack, and it spawned the Poppy family on the West Coast. And it was responsible for starting that Canadian system. Right. In addition to the music, though, did you get off a little bit on, on the business side of things? Uh, I did because early in the 60s, our first you know, big record, the Shaken All Over thing that did very well in Canada and the States, I remember you know, hearing these stories about these stars, you know, Buddy Holly and uh, Buddy Knox and these hit records they had that I grew up idolizing and how they got two or three or $400 for that million seller and that was it. And then when Shaken All Over was really big in the States, we got our... $400 check. I mean, here we were, four prairie dogs in Winnipeg. It was about 1965. We were in New York for the first time, and we got $400. It was 100 each. It was like real big time, but that was it. Right. It was gone. We went to Times Square. It was gone an hour. We bought some boots and a jacket. It was gone. <laughs> and at that point, I figured, well, I don't want to be like these guys, like the Buddy Knoxes and the, uh, the Little Richards and, the, you know, the guy who wrote Louie Louie and all these classic uh, rip-offs. That you don't have to be that desperate to make it, that you give everything away. You can give everything away, but put a time limit on it of a year or two so you can get it back after your hard work. So I learned with a lot of uh, mistakes and hopefully didn't make them repeatedly over and over. And you worked with a lot of people along the way who back at, in those days were probably booking like polka bands and, and strippers or something and, yes. and are now powerhouses in the industry. And I think you might have taught a few people a few lessons along the way too, right? Oh, that's pretty possible. Everybody was kind of growing then. It was a brand new industry, even in the States, but especially in Canada. There you go. Another teachable moment about the business of music. They get their $400 for selling a million copies of Shaken All Over. $400. And he's thinking about Little Richard. He's thinking about all those um, you know, African-American artists from the early days of rock and roll and other artists as well who just got robbed because of agreements of selling their music. And he even says there, you can sell your music, but make sure that has an expiry so that you can get them back. Very interesting. Well, it had to happen. 
the inevitable question came up about Randy's, shall we call it, love-hate relationship with Burton Cummings. I have to ask you very quickly before we get to the studio audience questions, you and Cummings, one of the, one of the great songwriting teams, no question, uh, and, and the songwriting team is, is a really fascinating thing. Are you sorry, bitter, what, in terms of the way things turned out? Uh, I think disappointed is more a word. You guys don't speak, do you? Or no, we now. had a falling out over our, our old tunes, and uh, it was kind of unfortunate. Uh, it's kind of like a family. I love him like a brother, but I don't like him as a person at this moment in time. Could, could you ever foresee? You have this in your family, right? Brothers, could, sisters, you know? Could you ever foresee working together again? Yeah, somebody asked me that, you know, um, the other side of Canada, I was doing promo last week, and they mentioned um, um, what would get the guests who back together, and I said, I don't know, or me and Cummings back together, and they said, how about an induction into the, the, the real Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not the Juno thing, the one that's in New York and Cleveland, Cleveland that's right. Credence and the Beatles and all that stuff, and right. I said, I think that would get us <laughs> on the same stage together, and so these, these jocks at Classic Rock said they were going to start a movement with a classic radio and get all the people in Canada to write in a petition and call these people and say, why can't this band, Canada's first rock band, the guess who be in this, you know, and petition it and, and make a noise, and that was just last week, so I, I hope he does that, it would be kind of nice. While everybody uh, listening, pick up pen and yeah. Yeah, and, and, uh, and that, that would get us together. We'd all come together. I mean, just like our reunion in 83, you know, we all had our differences. We're all doing different things. And when you get a phone call saying, can you come together for this one month? It would be real special to your fans. We'll record it. And we all did it. it was, that was a great thing in 83. But heck, that was 10 years ago. Right. You must miss him as a writing partner because you guys made some I magic. do. It was a big adjustment writing alone. You know, to learn to write alone was very tough. I'm still learning to write alone. It's still an ongoing. It's, I write great half songs and it's, it's great to write with another person. Right. Let's go to the uh, studio audience and have some questions. Who do we have? Uh, Paul. Hey, Paul. I have a question for Randy. Uh, did your live version of American Woman on the Live at the Paramount album cause uh, controversy with the American government over the explicity of some of the lyrics in the composition? Um, I don't know. I did, what did the government do? I don't know. Um, there were some lyrics in that song, and on stage live, Cummings did get carried away and start saying, goodbye, American slut, and goodbye, American... I don't even want to repeat the words. And uh, I was kind of angry when he was doing that. It was, it was like distorting the song. It's not how it was written. The American woman to us, when we wrote the song, to me, in my mind, and I wrote part of it, was the Statue of Liberty, and that was the war. And we had gone through all the late 60s, touring as a Canadian band there, and seeing how the war really um, screwed up the whole country. There was no young men in some of these towns. We, went, we were the only guys between 18 and 30. Everyone else had been drafted and gone. They tried to draft us, and we just zoomed back to Ken and sent back our green cards. So there's always this terror of, they're going to grab you. I mean, they actually grabbed guys and forced you to go. They took you out of school and everywhere. And it was like our anger. Uh, being so close to states and seeing it happening to American guys who are no different than us, our own age and basically our own circumstance being sent to fight the war. So um, I can't really speak for what Cummings did live on stage, but that's what the song was to us. It was a protest against the, the ghetto scenes because we'd never seen a ghetto coming from Winnipeg. You know, we had not really seen black people. The black people we saw in Winnipeg growing up were famous. They were the Ray Charleses, the Jackie Robinsons. Everybody was a star in movies or singing or, or in, in, in baseball. And we, we didn't see our first ghettos and, and black slums until we went way down south. And so we were angry about that and, and especially the war. Oh, so they did reunite a few times since this interview happened in 1993. But the problems still exist between the guys. And for the most part, it's all about 
publishing, and money. Five years ago, Randy said that he would never work with Burton again unless Burton made things right. And Randy's argument is pretty compelling that Randy kept asking him, look, when does our uh, agreement come due? I want to re-sign and all that stuff. And it seemed to Randy that Burton was being very evasive. And then he found out that essentially uh, Burton had kind of made deals uh, that Randy thought were um, uh, not fair and ended up with the rights and he was shut out. He's given Burton every opportunity to kind of make it good and he hasn't. Now that story and many others are from Randy's book Tales from Beyond the Tap. And the really interesting thing about what he says in in that last clip is the one thing that could get them together is an induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now remember, this interview was from what, 26 years ago. So that in itself is interesting. Why aren't the Guess Who in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? When you consider some of the bands that are there, they were groundbreaking, and those songs were really unusual. Undone was a really unusual song with the flute solo, and it sounded so great, and it's a great rock song, a great pop song. American Woman, like an incendiary song at the height of the Vietnam War, damning the American war machine. Those songs are great. And so... And Lenny Kravitz a, could do the induction, right? That's right. And and by the <laughs> way, Lenny Kravitz is part of that argument with them. Burton made so much money from Lenny's version of American Woman, which probably ended up being the biggest moneymaker for Burton. And Randy's upset about that, too. So that's interesting that you brought that up. But imagine that that would be so great to have them in. And, you know, finally rushes in, but there's not a lot of Canadian bands in there, and I really firmly believe the Guess Who is so underrated that they will, they not only will not be in anytime soon, but they will never be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's a, that's a real shame. Mm-hmm. Up on Cripple Creek She sends me if I spring a leaf She mends me, I don't have the speed that she defends me A drunkard's dream if I ever did see up on Cripple Creek, great song from the band. They're all great. You got to listen to the whole albums with all right. the band, not just the greatest hits. That's a trust me. Okay. Okay. All right. We have two interviews with the band recorded separately, of course. <clears throat> now, in both cases, they look back affectionately on their past, despite the differences that split them up. In the first of the two, we have Levon Helm and Rick Danko talking about their latest reunion, how music has changed, their history with Canada and playing with a legend not named Dylan. Hmm. Now, their speaking voices are as distinct as their singing voices. Um, That was Rick singing lead on songs like Stage Fright, Unfaithful Servant, and This Wheel's on Fire. Levon is doing lead vocals on Up on Cripple Creek, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, Rag Mama Rag, and, of course, The Wait. Now, a hint that will tell you who's speaking. Levon is from Elaine, Arkansas. (laughs) And Rick is from Greens Corners, Ontario, Canada. <laughs> that's, that's all you need to know. That's your guide. Okay, so let's get started with that interview. How long had you thought about getting back together again? It must have been kind of tough after the last waltz, the, the grand farewell. People might have said, well, that's got to be goodbye. Did you have any reservations about putting the band back together again? Well, we didn't, uh, we didn't have any plans or any, uh, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, on my part, personally, I hated to... I hated to see us hang up our hat, so to speak, but everybody had different projects that they wanted to try, and they still do, and there was no plan to get the band back together. I would have said a year ago or even six months ago that I seriously doubt it, even though Rick and I were performing and traveling a bit together, and 
it uh, it just came up came up lucky for us uh, some of our old friends here promoters and people that we know and worked with for years here in Canada wanted to see a tour happen and uh, Garth Garth's schedule cleared up and uh, Richard's schedule cleared up and uh, well how long can you go as the band how much well, time I can, I can go as long as Garth and uh, Richard wants to go uh, and brother Rick you know I'll show up and play with them anytime okay Rick how long we got oh man uh, I mean I know I'm gonna be playing when I'm 80 if I'm if I can kick a kick my leg or kick my foot you know any uh, chances of recording absolutely sure you have a record deal like you're on Capitol at one time, and where are you now? Are you, you floating, or I don't even know who's making records anymore, but uh, we'll probably make one sometime. No, I mean we all have different record contracts. I'm sure you know with different. I thought, we, I thought we had a bunch. <laughs> but we've also got one. We've also got one together. You know, I still think we're with uh, one of them ones out there in California. Do you think the music of the band, which was very much rooted in the '60s, at least a decade? was described by the music. Do you think that's still relevant today? Well, I think we play music. Uh, I don't know so much that it was rooted into the 60s. That's when we uh, sort of came yeah. through. We finally managed to uh, get a recording contract during the late 60s. Uh, this is after a lot of years of playing and uh, traveling around. But we like, we, I don't know, I always thought we just played, uh, played music as good as we could and uh, as long as we can play music uh, and want to and uh, perform well, uh, that ought to be uh, about as deep as it goes. Okay, now you're in the 80s and the music has changed a lot in the years. Uh, I read somewhere that you didn't personally listen to a lot of records. Is that still the case? Well, I don't know really if music has changed a lot. I think maybe... Uh, Technology's changed a little. I think maybe electronics has changed a little. But I don't think music's changed that much. You know, you still got your, your bottom line, you still got rhythm, and you still got melody, and hopefully harmonies. And uh, in our case, hopefully we can get some of it in pitch and sing on key. <laughs> you guys still living in Woodstock, or uh, are you all spread out? When I can. When the colonel lets me, I go back to Woodstock. Um, or if I'm close, I'll even go back to Arkansas and... Uh, get with the family and uh, watch television, watch movies, and uh, eat, home cooking, and that's a big vacation for me. You mentioned the colonel. Um, which colonel is that? This is Colonel Harold Cudlitz from Hamilton, Ontario, the same gentleman who brought myself and uh, Ronnie Hawkins and Conway Twitty and, and all of us up from the south years ago in the late 50s and put us to work playing uh, clubs around Ontario and uh, Quebec. Also, he took uh, fellows like Rick and Garth and uh, Richard and all the musicians from around Toronto and uh, the Ontario area and would send them down south. So he's the man that used to have that north-south. Uh, Is he still affiliated with you? He still is. He retired out of the business for a while, uh, put his family through school, and uh, I've, I've talked him into coming back and uh, giving me a little bit of a hand a couple of years ago when the IRS and a few other problems got hot on my trail, and uh, since then, he's, uh, he's been very helpful to all of us. You guys have spent a lot of time in Canada, of course, uh, four out of five or three out of four, whatever your numbers are today, are Canadians. Um, That's right. Do you ever feel different because you're the lone American? 
No, I, I used to live here too. You know, I was, uh, Toronto was my home more or less for a good eight or 10 years. And when we would leave this area, we would go down south and play our nightclub uh, dance hall college dance uh, circuit through Arkansas and Oklahoma and Texas. So those were the two home areas for, for all of us. So I think that, um, you know, that's probably why uh, the rest of the fellows feel uh, as much American as I do Canadian. There's not a lot of difference in our feelings about it. Moves more east-west than north-south anyway. I think, uh, well, Toronto and Memphis got a lot in common, you know. Humidity and uh, people and uh, the music charts and uh, <clears throat> real close. You played a lot of rough spots over the years, and probably a lot of great dates, too. Mm -hmm. Is there one real bad night that stands out? Let's ask Rick this one, and then, uh, mm -hmm. and then a great night. A, a bad night? Oh, we've had, we played behind chicken wire back when we were kids, where people would throw bottles and stuff. They'd just get that drunk, though. It was nothing to do with us. You know, it wasn't, uh, they'd throw as many at the wall as they would uh, to chicken wire, you know. And, uh, there were a lot of those, I guess. Well, I, I can remember one or two. <laughs> you know, no, you don't. You don't really want a lot of them. I mean, you do about one of them, and you check yourself. You know, you have a you have a tendency to uh, Lean to not. Yeah, yeah, you have a tendency to not remember that as much as you would uh, the night in Woodstock when Muddy Waters came up, and we had a chance to meet and play with Muddy Waters. And uh, I remember one night out in San Francisco down in uh, the basement of the Miyako Hotel when the cameras or the tape recorders wasn't running and we were playing with Muddy Waters and every room. hair on the back of my head was standing up. Absolutely, that was great. You know, I'll never forget uh, that. Well, you guys have played with some big names. Uh, of course, uh, the last waltz was, was all your friends there. Uh, you ever see any of those people again, like Bob and... Uh, you know, Neil and all the guys? Sometimes. Sometimes we get to run across them. Everybody's usually traveling and so on, but uh, it sure is fun when we do. Uh, them them kind of nights really make it fun to uh, shake hands again. Okay, I hope you guys do something and play something for many more years to come and uh, get that record deal so we can play some new band stuff. And uh... well, I, I hope so, too. I thank you for saying that. Thanks a lot. That was from an early 80s interview with Levon Helm and Rick Danko of the band. And Boy, now, Christopher, do you remember yes. that I almost lost my mind when I discovered this and I sent it to you? It was about a week ago. <laughs> I was heading downtown and uh, on, on the train, and I was listening to it, and I was so excited because the charm of that interview, but there's also a bit of sadness in that interview and the fact that they were playing much smaller venues, you know, that the band would have played um, perhaps with Robbie or perhaps a time of greater popularity. So that was both a really lovely interview and there was a bit of sadness tinged in that. Do you not agree? Well, it was bittersweet for me for yet another reason, and that is that, you know, Rick Danko was talking about the fact that he just wants to keep playing, I think, into his 80s or something. Right. And as long as he can kick up his leg or something like that, he said. And, of course, he was gone in his 50s. Right. Um, I mean, they, there's a lot of losses there. I mean, Levon had a much longer life, but mm -hmm. Richard Manuel and Rick Danko were gone way, way too soon. Yeah, and I think Richard Manuel has gone, you know, fairly soon after this interview. Now, he's not part of the interview, but it was within within a few short years that this interview took place that Richard Manuel was gone. And that, that itself is a really tragic story of his demise. But let's keep going now with Robbie Robertson. So this is part two with Robbie Robertson. 
And um, there is another member of the group that chimes in a little bit towards the end, and I think it's Rick Danko again, okay, if that's yeah. possible. I don't know either. But, but I can't promise you, so don't don't hold me to it, all right? Okay. Robbie talks about when the opportunity to play with Bob Dylan first came up and what it meant to them. Some abuse. At the time, it wasn't really a jump. It wasn't really stardom. It was just a, something for us to do at the time. We weren't really... Uh, that aware of what the situation was. We weren't that up on Bob Dylan's past, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a fluke. They just came out of the air all of a sudden, and uh, it seemed like an interesting thing to do at the time. After we got into it, we realized, uh, you know, what was going on here, and uh, we played in Europe, in Australia, and the uh, United States and Canada, and it was exciting. It was fun, and uh, you know, we eventually got... Uh, very involved in in the music and uh, had a good time. It's really funny because this was kind of a fluke, them playing for Dylan. And it not only, like, road-tested them in a big way, because this was when Dylan went electric and when people were shouting Judas from the audience Mm -hmm. when Bob Dylan plugged in his guitar, especially kind of in the second part of the concert. I think he would start his concerts with an acoustic set, and then he'd come back with the band, and the sound quality, because sound quality in the mid-60s for large venues, was not great. And what happened is Dylan was so ticked off at the response that he was getting from the audience, and he was so determined to throw it back that he would actually have the band turn up their instruments to the point (laughs) where they sounded terrible, right? So he's like, it's a real screw you moment from Bob Dylan and the band. And that band got whipped into shape. First, they got a lot of calluses all over their bodies from the, you know, the kind of the verbal whippings that they took from that audience all over, especially England. And uh, it's it was quite interesting for the band's development to be road tested in that way. And then it defined Well, they also them. got trashed at the Newport Folk Festival too. For sure. England. That's absolutely yeah. right, yeah. And in a way that kind of defined them. You know, they were Bob Dylan's band and then they themselves became a huge influence for other artists um, who felt that the band changed the course of American music, which is pretty ironic when four of the guys in the band were Canadian. It's interesting. They had no plans to record what became the Basement Tapes. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but we were just hanging out at this house. Maybe which, a three which, or four month period. You know, but it wasn't like we went in there to record these songs for three or four months. We were there just doing uh, our usual thing. And at one point in there, all of a sudden the thing started happening and... Uh, and we just put down a bunch of tape uh, songs on tape for no particular reason. We didn't know, uh, you know, what it was about when we were doing it. And mm-hmm. later on, after it <clears throat> somehow got out into the public, that's when it became. Um, uh, I mean, it was something that we didn't see at all, you know. And after the big fuss and everything, uh, uh, you know, it, it came to our attention then that it, we had done something. Uh, a little bit more special than what we realized. Right. It was done under such a relaxed circumstance and for no reason at all. It wasn't a record. We were just fooling around and trying to get some songs written, and uh, and we were in uh, in this house, you know. And it was very inspiring and very fast and and fun to do. No pressure. It was probably the least pressurized uh, recording situation that any of us have ever been involved in. Mm-hmm. We'd get together uh, every day and. Uh, uh, Oh, we'd write songs and run down and record them. Right. It was like that. It was, you know, I don't know, we must have cut 150 songs, you know. Bob wow. likely wrote 
80 of them. What a great moment in their history. They just gather almost every day. They kind of wander into this big pink house and they just start playing and they plug in and they record on seven inch, uh, seven and a half inch tape. You know, they just play and jam and it turns into something and then the rumors of it existing start coming out and then bootlegs start coming out and becomes this legendary thing. Well, you know, the whole loosey-goosey sort of uh, aspect of how they did it is so well chronicled in the Robbie Robertson book that if you want to know about that, what the backdrop to all of that is, that's the place to go. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the issues between Robbie and Levon, because those issues are legendary, and they all Mm -hmm. have to do with songwriting royalties. Now, Robbie wrote many of the songs, most of the songs, so he reaped the bulk of the financial rewards. Also, he was always the adult in the room when it came to going to band meetings, meeting with management, you know, trying to get everybody kind of on the same page, leading the parade in terms of planning big events. And his royalty rate, he felt, would have been well-deserved considering how much he contributed to the band. Now... It's very interesting because that was a deep bruise with Levon, and he never really ever forgave Robbie for the, for the rest of his life. You know, a few years after he worked with Robbie, see, the other guys in the band teamed up with a songwriter, whose name I can't remember, who wrote some songs for them. And Levon explained the whole situation with Robbie, said it really left a bad feeling. And what he wanted to do is this guy would be writing songs with the band, but... Levon asked the songwriter to split their song royalties five ways. And the guy just said, no way. I'm writing these songs and I'm only getting one fifth or one sixth of the, of, the, of the full royalty. That didn't seem fair to me. So he backed away. Isn't that interesting? Well, we should also clarify we're talking about two completely different royalty sources. The um, mechanical royalties are based on sales. Right. And those go to the artist. So it may be, and I don't know what their agreement was, but it may be, and I would expect it, it is, that the band... Uh, royalties in, for, for mechanicals would have been divided equally among the band members. Right. But now we're also talking about songwriting royalties, and those are typically divided uh, among the people that participated in the creative process of the songs. Um, some bands don't do it that way, like U2. They split all the songwriting royalties as well as the mechanical royalties, but I think that is the exception to the rule. Right. And if Robbie wrote most of the song, um, I'm sorry, I think that's how it works. Yes. So And boy... That bitterness ran deep. There was a lot of talk, you know, when Levon was on his deathbed, that Robbie was there, and they managed to work things out. And then uh, there was that rumor, and so someone from his family walked in and said, uh, you know, I hear that you and Robbie worked out some stuff. And basically, Levon, I have to uh, paraphrase now, said, we didn't work out crap. And those were like almost, you know, it's right at the end of his life. They never did sort it out, according to some of the sources that I've read um, about Levon and Robbie Robertson. Well, one of the things that I heard um, is that if you listen to Levon talk, and you can hear it in our interview, he is so evocative of the South, the Deep South. He is from Arkansas. And he speaks sort of in an idiomatic way. And if you listen to what he is saying and the, the way that he observes things and sorts things and the type of language that he uses, all you have to do is be listening. You can just pull little bits and pieces and use those in a song. And I think maybe the argument would be, well, if they sort of drew from his conversation, should that not also be part of the composition? And I have no answer for that. Right. There you go. Great stuff. Levon Helm, Rick Danko, Robbie Robertson, and the band. Okay, that does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Now, we need your help, because a few weeks ago, Christopher and I introduced a new segment called They Should Have Known Better. 
And that is when artists make really bad decisions or release really bad music just for the sake of, you know, commercial success or whatever it is they do. And we want you to choose an artist and explain to us how they should have known better. All right? You can do that by following us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod or on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. This week's show, as always, was produced by Adam Karsh, executive producer Rob Farina. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. We'll see you next week on Famous Lost Words.